Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. Nick here. Welcome to another week, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. I'm delighted to have you here. I hope you've been enjoying the show. Lots of different guests, lots of different perspectives, as I like to mix it up a bit. And I hope you've been getting great value from 15 Minutes to Action. If you've got any suggestions about different topics that you'd like me to cover, particularly in the 15 Minutes to Action episodes, then please join us in the Scale Up Your Business community on Facebook. Reach out to me. Let us know. As I said, I do the podcast to help you. I want to make sure that I'm covering all the various areas of business growth and scale up to help you on your journey. All righty. Now, today, I'm delighted to have with me two guests. I have Michael Solomon and Rashawn Blumberg. And they are the authors of an amazing book, actually. It's called Game Changer, How to Be 10x in the Talent Economy. I think now more than ever, with things changing in terms of the way we work, God, let's let's be honest, the way society is changing, uh, there's never been a more important time than to be thinking about talent, how you can bring talent into your business, how you can create exponential value um, by managing talent effectively. And what's cool about these guys and and such a timely book is that they've been working together for years as business partners and and they've been involved in scaling tech businesses through talent. Uh, They've even got an interesting background that goes back kind of into the music industry as well uh, and how you kind of think about managing talent in the, the sort of whole entertainment world, which in its own right can be quite complex and challenging with the personalities involved. So I'm delighted to have the guys on the show. Listen intently because they are going to get into quite a lot of important things. And whether whether you are thinking about employing people, having a fractional workforce, whatever it is, whatever it is in terms of leverage to help scale your business, uh, the guys on the show today are going to help you. So just another quick couple of announcements before we get started. Um, Coming up very, very soon, I am going to be relaunching Scale Up Your Business, and we are going to be focusing on how we can really start to help businesses grow and scale uh, really as a result of everything that's going on in the world today. So look out for that. Scale Up Your Business has become much more than a podcast. It has become a community. And off the back of that, I've wanted to help people more. So so we are going to be doing that. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. And in the next week or so, there will be some information coming out about that. And very lastly, if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't left a review, please do that. It helps the channel. It inspires me. And uh, I always like getting your feedback. All righty. So that's it for today. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Michael and Rishon. Hi, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business for another week. Today, I am delighted to have with me Rashawn Blumberg and Michael Solomon. They are the co-authors of a book coming out shortly called Game Changer, How to Be a 10X in the Talent Economy. 
guys. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Thank you Thanks. for having us. Thanks. Awesome. Excited to be here. Okay, great. Well, listen, let's, before we get into what you're doing with the book and kind of what you guys are planning around that and certainly your philosophies around this, can we just get a bit of a, a sense of who you are? So, Michael, can you just give the, um, the listeners of Scale Up Your Business your backstory and and kind of what you do and why you do it. Sure. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a, a, a bit of a professional backstory very quickly that'll include both Roshan and I, um, and then I'll separate out the stuff that's a little bit more about me. So we have a 25-year-old artist management company in the music industry, or at least it started out in the music industry, where we look after um, wonderful musicians like Vanessa Carlton. Over the years, we've worked with people like John Mayer. Uh, we've consulted with Bruce Springsteen, um, Citizen Cope, lots of lots of great people. And um, as the music industry got disrupted pretty badly, we figured we needed to at least augment, if not find something else to do. And that led us to a uh, momentary flash of inspiration, which is that the new rock stars are technology creators and wonder if they needed management. And we sort of had this experience that really yelled very very loudly that they did need management and there was an opportunity here. So we ported that business model over to that industry and we now have a, a talent agency for very high level freelance tech professionals, which is about eight or nine years old called 10X Management. Um, most recently we've, we've created an offshoot of that called 10X Ascend, where we help people who are in the technology industry negotiate full-time job offers. So we help the people on a transactional basis with their full-time job negotiation and then we help them on a career basis with their freelance business practices, um, which includes negotiation and contracting and all, and all of those things. Um, so that's our professional background. Rashawn might add something to that when we get there. Um, on, on the other side of things, we've got um, a, a nonprofit life um, where we have a Venn diagram that overlaps between the two of us on some of the things, but not all of the things. Um, I co-founded an organization called Musicians on Call, which I'm quite proud of. Uh, working on an organization, on a new organization called the We Are All Music Foundation. And then we have in between us the Kristen Ann Carr Fund, which raises money for sarcoma research, treatment, and cure. I live in Montclair, New Jersey. I have uh, two teenagers and a wonderful wife. And life is good, even though we're in the midst of a lot of upheaval on a lot of levels. So, Rashawn, why don't you jump in and add anything I've left off? Yeah, well, you're a busy guy, Michael. And um, you know what? You're in good company because everyone who comes on the show seems to be doing multiple projects and managing families and dealing with our current environment. So welcome. My father's most quotable line that I use, I think, is when you want something done, you go to the busiest person in the room. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a good <laughs> adage. It's a mindset, isn't it, in, yeah. in many cases? Excellent. Well, listen, welcome. So, And also, Rashawn, so uh, your story. Welcome as well to, to yeah, so, scale up your business. So thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. <clears throat> so professionally, I don't really have anything to add. Um, I think that was a pretty good overview of the, uh, the companies that we've started, um, the nonprofits that we work with. Um, so I'll just say that uh, I also grew up in New York City. Michael and I have known each other since third grade. Um, we started being entrepreneurial in high school. Um, we were the guys that would like rent a loft space and make a deal with a beer distributor and promote uh, a party throughout the private school scene here in New York City. Um, and that led to other like small entrepreneurial things. We did, a, we had a t-shirt business at one point, we were selling t-shirts on the NYU, NYU campus. Um, and then when I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania for four years, um, I worked on the concert committee there, and after leaving or after graduating from, from school, I ended up working at the company 
who we had hired when I was at Penn to help us with the concerts. And so that's how I sort of got into the music business. Um, and then ultimately, as Michael said, we went and started a, uh, an artist management company not too long after that. We were fairly young. I think we were 25, 24, 25 years old. Um, and it was a ballsy move. I mean, it was definitely uh, something that we probably should have waited a little bit longer to start. But I think we learned a lot of really valuable lessons in those first five to seven years um, that helped to shape a lot of the information that's in uh, Game Changer, our book. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of my background. I also, I'm also married. I have two teenagers. Um, I play a lot of tennis. I read. Um, yeah, it's a little bit about me. So have you guys, have you guys always worked together then? Have you always had companies and projects together? Pretty Profes much. Professionally, there were there was about a three or four year stint post college when we got real jobs and didn't work together, but that was <laughs> that was short lived. But we okay, were sort of doing we were doing management uh, artist management stuff in the background while working at those jobs. So there's also an overlap of unofficially starting, um, but officially we started working together. 25 years ago and change i think april got it. so, so the question ago. i've got for you because you mentioned obviously the private school network and and pretty decent sort of college university what's what's the um what did that stuff teach you about entrepreneurship well michael I'll, I'll jump in here so one of the things we learned early on um you know we had a bunch of friends in new york city whose parents were in the music business and i think we learned fairly early as at least as it pertained to the music industry um that it was really a hustle game and and a game of i don't know if attrition is the right word but it's the kind of thing where if you can stay in it you can stay active and you can be a positive influence um good things will start happening uh, and i think that that's true probably of most businesses if you are gritty and you can stay in it and you can keep doing the right things making the right kinds of decisions um, I think eventually things will really start uh, leaning in your favor. It's that old saying that uh, luck is the uh, cross-section of opportunity and preparedness. And I think that that is so key for entrepreneurs is putting the work in, being prepared to take advantage of those opportunities when they arise. And, and I think that's something that we learned very early on. Cool. How about you, Michael? Um, I yeah. I mean, I think that my formal education, I, I and I went to University of Connecticut for a year, and then I came back and went to Baruch, was not my strong suit in life. Um, I was um, going back a minute. I was asked to leave middle school for academic reasons. Um, I've done okay in the world. I did not do great in school, um, and even though I think I finally figured it out by the end of college, I don't. I don't have a lot of like huge takeaways from my college years about entrepreneurship. I feel like entrepreneurship was everything I learned not in school. Um, it was the, it was the hustle. It was the get knocked down. Get That's what I expected up. you to say, by the way, guys, because you know, you're in good company because well, most people come here. Most of the, the sort of guys who have got net worths in the hundreds of millions, and I've had a couple of guys in the billions, they often say that their real education happened when they left school. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, you know, he went to Wharton, so he got like a great and did entrepreneurial management. So he got like really useful stuff. At the very least, he came out of school as like a spreadsheeting guru. I got none of that stuff, but I think that, I think the entrepreneur that, stuff. Though. That's yeah. a very powerful thing. I can see it, Rashawn. That's a powerful thing. Cause I'm terrible at that. My business partner's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we got a lot out of the, um, 
hustling, you know, uh, there's the whole, um, what's that, that expression, life happens while you're making plans, that, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the learning happens while we were trying to figure out how to do things. Um, and I still, I mean, if I'm honest, I still love sort of getting myself in over my head and then figuring out how to do it. Build, building the plane on the way down, if you know what I mean. No, I do. And lots, lots of people think that, you know, from the outside, if they haven't gone down an entrepreneurial journey before, they think it's kind of like you create this amazing thing and then it works. And then, you know, someone buys it and you become a billionaire. But the reality of it is, in my experience as well, it's it's pivot after pivot after iteration after iteration. And, and often there's, there's a lot of experimentation before you get to the thing that actually really starts to work. Right? Yeah. And a lot uh, of you the know, things you know, that lead to those pivots are like body blows and blood and you're oh, like, yeah. you're, you're the, knocked the down, you're like crawling back up. But that's that's what builds grit. You, you know what I always find interesting? Um, and we deal with this a lot in both of our businesses or all of our businesses is when we were asked to sign uh, an NDA, um, I always find NDAs to be kind of a silly document because at the end of the day, what we're talking about right now is execution is the difference between a great idea succeeding and failing. You can have a great idea, but if no one can execute on it or you can't execute it on yourself, what's, what's the value in the idea? So when somebody gives me an NDA and they're already working on something, I'm sort of like, okay, so you think I'm going to steal your idea and then I'm going to execute on it better than you can, even though you've already started doing this idea. It always it always feels weird to me because the idea is is really a small part of the entrepreneurial game and 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 life cycle. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. I, I often say well, I've got seven businesses, and I and I put out all of all of what would be called traditional IP goes out there for free. You know, they can everyone can see what we do. Everyone can see broadly the, the ethos, the values, the yeah. behaviors that drive it. But as you said, the arts and the execution, you know, that's where the magic happens when the rubber hits the road to use an old saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's an expression Rashan uses a lot, actually. There you go. Good. It's a great expression. Didn't, didn't somebody right. name an album after that from one? No, of our... we we put we put together a tour in the mid two thousands with a few bands called the Rubber Meets the Road Tour. Okay. Well, there you go. And I, I could ask you like lots of questions about Bruce Springsteen, but I won't because it will divert the whole reason for the for the podcast today. All right. well, but I do have a question about music. Why why did you decide back then that that was where you wanted to play? On the premise also that it's a hugely competitive industry anyway, and to break into its heart. So what was the the thinking around that, and how did you do it? We might both have to answer this question. I think we might have different answers. So I definitely, okay. um, well, first of all, I was dating a woman who's mother co-managed Bruce Springsteen. And that was sort of a very obvious entry point into this industry. And we knew other people in the industry, but I think that a lot of it was sort of, I was young and this was a lifestyle business that fit with the lifestyle that I liked and I wanted and the glamour and all of the trappings around it. Plus, and, and we get into this extensively in, in Game Changer, the, the first thing that we saw up close in the music industry was Bruce Springsteen's relationship with his management, which no one told us, no one whispered in our ears, by the way, you're looking at the unicorn that you're never going to see again. This doesn't really exist normally. Um, we just thought, oh, this is, this is what a great artist manager relationship looks like. Let's go, let's go get this, not realizing we were spending the rest of our lives chasing the Holy Grail. Okay, cool. Vishon, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's very true. Uh, you know, the only thing I'll add, and I mentioned this earlier, is I think we had a, a, a viewpoint into the music industry 
that a lot of other people didn't because a bunch of our friends' parents were in that business. So I think when we were growing up, um, friends of ours who lived outside of New York City, they loved music as, as much as we did, but they loved it because of where it took them, what it did for them. Maybe they were fanatics about the actual musicians and who produced things, and they looked at the, the liner notes. That wasn't so much what we saw. What we saw was the business that existed behind the music that we loved, um, and I think that, you know, the music industry is one of those places that the barrier to entry is really uh, the hustle that you're willing to put in and a little bit of who you know. So we knew a decent number of people already in the business and uh, we weren't really interested in finance or banking or things like that, where you have sort of a set like at the end of the school year, you know, banks hire financial institutions, hire that class of, of people to go in and, and start working at the bank. That wasn't the case uh, for the music business. And that wasn't something that we were interested in. So I think it was the barrier to entry for us was it, it, it really shifted towards the positive aspects where we had some relationships there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and we knew people already. We knew people who were working there, but we also knew musicians. Um, and that's actually how I ended up running the concert committee at Penn. One of our close friends was an artist, uh, a musician who played in a band and he called me one day when I you know, got to school and he's like, hey, we'd like to come down and play at your school. What can we do? So I looked into it. So it was, it was really this, this sort of almost a 360 engulfing uh, uh, around the music industry that said to us like, hmm, this, this aligns with all the things we want, the lifestyle that we want, the kind of creativity we want, it's entrepreneurial. And so that was really what got us into the business. Okay, great. Well, let's talk about um, the concept of 10x for a second, because um, as as your book says, it's how to be 10x in the talent economy. What what do you guys define as 10x? Do you want to have a go at that first, Rashawn? Yeah, so 10x is is a little bit of a um, what I'd like to call theater of the mind. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you can actually objectively put criteria to and like say, oh, you, I can see you are 10X. It's much more this idea of somebody who has very high IQ and very high EQ, intelligent quotient, emotional quotient. Um, and it's somebody who is constantly learning, who is incredibly curious, who can communicate at a very sophisticated level, and also has the intellectual capacity to create in more elegant ways than other people would. And elegance here doesn't necessarily mean just fast, it means quality. Um, and this is something we believe can exist in, in all verticals, but we use technology as the backdrop for obvious reasons. Um, and it's really about somebody who can, who can deliver exponential value wherever they go. That's, that's sort of the, the definition of 10X. And by the way, that can be applied to, towards an organization as well. An organization that is run very, very well, very effectively, that deals with their people in appropriate ways. By the way, the people we call talent. Um, because everybody is, is a certain talent within an organization. Um, so organizations can also be 10X and that's how we split the book up. Half the book is about how organizations can become 10X and the other half is about how individuals can strive towards 10X-ness. You didn't want to um, use, the, use the term rock stars in this. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> yeah, That would have been too literal guys, wouldn't yeah, it? Like it, would have, it would have been a little on the nose. <laughs> Yeah. Well, because, you know, it's like, because I've studied the concept of A players and things like that. And what, as you're talking now, I'm trying to understand the difference. 
So I'm hearing how you've described a 10x individual, and I'm thinking a player. It used to be called Rockstar, yeah. in that, you know, some someone's crappy book years ago. Yeah. Obviously, not your book. So what's the difference? Is there any difference? Or are we just talking about really talented individuals who balance lots of things, join a company with the right um, sets of values and behaviors, as well as the capability and the intellect? I think the difference in the way that we're using the term is it's not just the skill. So you, you in any industry, you could find somebody who has 10x skills, but doesn't have the 10x EQ to go along with it. And they can't be a 10x performer. They might be the they might be the greatest coder ever, but they're going to be sitting in a corner because they can't communicate and play well with others. And for for our definition of 10x, you really have to be able to do both, because in order to provide the 10x value, you have to be able to play well with others. There's very few examples of an individual contributor who just by themselves, independent of communication, changes something for a company. But there's lots of examples when somebody is is in in the version of the way we use the word a 10xer and completely changes the, the dynamic of the company okay and yeah because i mean i've been involved in in a, in a well, both businesses i've owned and also advising businesses where if someone comes in who i mean it always happens in sort of sales roles where someone comes in they can be an amazing person at, at revenue delivery but if they are an arsehole you know then they don't fit the culture and therefore you know as Someone like Jack Welsh used to say, well, you know, you can't tolerate that sort of person in, in your business longer term. So when I look at that, I think, well, okay, of course, you want to have someone who has, as I said beforehand, the values that are aligned with the business. And I've been involved in companies like that, which are very, very values led, um, regardless of whether their output is great. So is it, is it a similar concept to that? Yeah, yes. I mean, you, you definitely want to have, uh, I think for a 10X or 2B 10X, they have to be contributing uh, to an organization that they believe the mission aligns with their own personal values. So I, I definitely think that there's a culture element to this as well. You have to have that cultural fit. But really what we're, we're really talking about somebody who is um, capable of not just intellectual, high intellectual thought, but as Michael said, being able to deal with the interpersonal elements that go along with working in the modern world. I mean, all companies at this point are learning to do more with less. And the only way you can really effectively do more with less is if you're communicating really effectively um, with the entire team. And we talk about this, this is almost the sort of the backdrop of the entire book is about communication and the various types of communication that you have to uh, perform as an individual um, and, as a, and as an organization. And so people who are 10X have this ability to communicate and integrate with groups, different types of groups, um, and understand how to deal with managers that provide a lot of management and guidance and, and feedback, um, and managers that don't provide a lot of management and feedback. A 10Xer will know how to deal with those types of management situations. And conversely, they'll also be able to understand the elements of how to contribute to, to building up other people in the organization and the team by managing down or managing sideways. Um, and that's sort of this, that really becomes sort of this holistic view of what 10X is, because I think too many people focus on like 10X value, like you're going to make a, our company 10 times better. That may be true on a micro level, but the reality is these are people who are exceptionally gifted at what they do and exceptionally gifted at working within an organization and a team to help it function better. 
Okay, I got it. Just going to add to the Jack Welch thing you said, because it really touches on another thing that we identify in the book that we're sort of alluding to and dancing around a little bit, which we call the management continuum, which on the one hand has the success impulse, on the other hand has the sabotage impulse. And the sabotage impulse is somebody, and it, you could have the highest level of intelligence around and the highest level of skill around, but if you're somebody who sits in an organization and is constantly blaming the people around you and not taking responsibility for your work, not interested in feedback for what you need to do to improve things or how you need to get along with others, if you're not, if you're not open to those things, you're not going to be able to improve and get better, which means that you actually become a liability to an organization. And that's going back to what you were saying about Jack Welsh. Like they got to go. And part of what we get into in, in that particular section is how do you see, how do you identify these qualities? How do you screen for them so you don't even get the people in? But if you do get them in accidentally, how do you recognize it so you can get them out? Because they, they really take down culture and they take down productivity, even though they might no, be no, I can incredibly see smart. I've seen it many a time in, in various businesses. I want to get into the practicalities of this because I think as you touched on them, Michael, it's useful for people listening to this about how this can be applied. Before we do that, though, I just want to um, ask around the, the, you said a couple of things that were quite interesting to me as well around this can be applied to any person or organization, but you specifically talk about it through the lens of technology. And I, I understand that on the basis that every business is going through change because of digital and because of that. But are you specifically talking about technical capability or technology driven capability? Or is it or is it broader than that from your perspective? I mean, we're, we're definitely talking about sort of the ability to code at a very high level and understand problems and problem solving at a very high level. And also, and also the interest, the genuine interest in problem solving, which is something that we see in 10Xers across the board. Um, so yeah, I, I think that this is really, for us, when we talk about technology and the people that we represent at 10X and uh, 10X Management and 10X Ascend, these are people that are exceptional at what they do. And we've seen time after time how this exceptional capability, both the EQ and the IQ, can make a seismic difference in organizations. When we place somebody on an engagement and they help change the valuation of that company because they solve problems that heretofore the company had not been able to solve, like that's a real uh, game-changing type of talent. And, and that's really why we use technology as, as the backdrop. But it, it really does apply to other organizations. There are going to be exceptional players in any vertical um, and those are the types of people you need to attract, retain, manage effectively um, in order for you to have a competitive advantage. And that's what the book is, is talking yeah, about. Yeah, I figure by the time I'm 60 or 70, I could be 10X. Not there yet, but um, I'm, I'm doing the things to try and get there. Well, that yeah, as I said, I want to get into the, into the attributes as well in a sec. But one thing that just struck me is, and this, this may be the wrong analogy, but just to play this forward is um, when I was going through university, there were a lot of people studying medicine who had come from a background of just getting the books and they had no what we call bedside manner yep, right. because that wasn't part of it. But there was a big fallout because they couldn't, you know, they could diagnose what was wrong with someone, but they couldn't communicate in a way which would be empathetic, et cetera. And I'm just wondering, as, as you said, around coding, and there's a lot of very sort of cerebral kind of intellectual things that come behind that, but it's not exactly the most social of, of vocations. Is, is that one of the reasons? Is that also in there? Because if someone can come in there and, and communicate and talk well, but has a very high 
uh, ability to do the really technical things. That must be rare. It's actually our experience that more of these people who are amazing at technology are also pretty well-rounded and can communicate. Now, we are screening for those people. We don't want somebody who can just write code and can't be in a room with other people. That's not, that's not our perfect client. So we don't, we, we don't value that in the same way. And there are use cases for those, but they're few and far between. They're really like, they, that's, that's definitely not in our mind what a great 10Xer is. Like that is somebody no. who's highly skilled. I was just more interested about whether that's more the, um, the common play of what you see, because no. my understanding also... So no. there are more people, as you said, who are more rounded coming through now. Yes. They, the, the very bizarre thing is so many of these technologists are musicians. They speak multiple languages. Many of them are really into outdoor activity or cooking. Like these are, these are really renaissance people. And the thing, the reason that we've figured out that that's the case is most of them code in um, learn to code on their own. They're very DIY people. So they can learn anything. And this is, this is sort of how we, one of the ways that we got to the attributes of, of a 10Xer is there's this lifelong learning desire and this ability to teach themselves things. And that's part of, that's a huge part of what a 10Xer is. And as it relates to technology, technology gets, gets completely out of date very quickly. So you have to be learning new things. If you're somebody who learned technology and you're just going to sit on those laurels, you're, you're out of luck. Like that's not going to, you're not gonna be able to keep up. So you have to be somebody who keeps learning. And once you learn how to learn and you learn how to love how to learn how to learn, you learn a lot of new things. That was a lot of use of word. Learning. <laughs> There's a lot of learning, 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 but I, I think we got it. I love, I love the analogy to, to doctors though. My wife is a doctor and um, we've seen it many, many times. And I do think bedside manner is that EQ element that you're talking about. It's a human to human interaction uh, treating people like they are people as opposed to, you know, whatever their, their place is in an organization. Uh, maybe they're an assistant or they're, you know, beneath you in some way. Um, you have to treat everybody with respect, kindness, uh, empathy. Um, and that's definitely some of the stuff we get into the book as well. It's, it's, it's a lot of soft skills. Great. Let, let's get into a bit more of the practicality now, I think. So if someone's listening to this, and they might have an eight-figure business and they have ambitions of selling that in hundreds of millions of private equity. A lot of the listeners are in that space and they're thinking, actually, how do I assess where I am now on this? Because actually that sounds interesting, but I want to get a, a bit of an audit or I want to have an understanding of whether I'm moving in the right direction to have more of these type of individuals in my business. Where do they start? Well, conveniently, we made a little quiz, which is on the book site. Um, uh, thank you for leading us right to that. Uh, the, the website it wasn't is, even rehearsed. Yeah, no, that? it wasn't. The, the website is <laughs> gamechangerthebook.com. Um, and there is a quiz there and you can take it both for your institution, for your organization or for yourself as an individual. Um, so I think that's a great place to start. And you're going to learn just from doing the questions, the kinds of things you need to be thinking about. And then the most important thing that I think, uh, leaders can do is create a culture in an organization that's attractive to 10 Xers. And it's the, 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 whole, the whole premise of the book, or at least the first half of the book, is about how to do this. These are people who want to care about what they're working on. So if you want them to make widgets and you, the widgets don't matter at all, and you can't convince them that the widgets are an important thing in their life and why they should care about them, you're not going to get their best work. If you create an environment where they can't get feedback, where they can't keep learning, and there's no opportunity for continuing education and growth, you're not going to get a 10 Xer, or if you do, they're not going to stay very long because they're going to go somewhere else. 
Um, and if you have a culture where it's sort of top down worker last, you're a cog in the machine, have that on my desk at 3.30. I don't care what's going on in your life at home with COVID, you know, with the world, you're not going to succeed very well with 10Xers. And frankly, you're not going to see very well, succeed very well with millennials and Gen Z either um, because they all want to be treated like people and like they have an important role to play, whether it's a giant role or a medium role, they don't want to be treated like a cog in a machine. And if, you're, if your employees are feeling like that, you're not creating an environment where 10Xers are going to, are going to be drawn. Yeah, well, you're not creating a high value business either. No. You know, certainly right. one that's sustainable. I mean, most of my, as you guys know, most of my background was selling businesses into private equity. And yeah. there's a lens that they look through, which, which I have a model around as well. But you brought up a point I was going to ask as well around the generational slant that goes into this. Is there any, I'm 45, you know, so I've kind of gone through it. What, what generation am I? I always get uh, you're you're probably the Yeah, you're probably the bottom of Gen X. Gen X. So how, how has that changed now that when you look at this, because, because I see that with some of the, the younger people coming through, there is different expectations of what their careers are like, the place of work is like, versus certainly what I experienced. And so I'd like to understand that as well in, in terms of how you've done this. I think- well, I, I do think they're more purpose-driven. Millennials and, and Gen Z are very interested in the values of a business. And we certainly, uh, we don't go into great detail about values in the book, but we're a big proponent mm-hmm. of a company determining what their values are as an organization and making those values public, um, if only to their employees. Um, and then culture is important to them as well. They want to be part of something that is interesting, fun, that the team is all galvanized towards, um, you know, working on. And, you know, there's, there's a lot that's come out of Silicon Valley, which, which really predates millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Z. Um, but those concepts are now the concepts that are most aligned, I think, with millennials and Gen Z, which is a lot of, you know, failing fast, a lot of communication, a lot of understanding and iteration, and also being mission-driven, purpose-driven, doing something that hopefully makes a difference in the world. Um, and I think a lot of the disruption you see in Silicon Valley is based out of this idea of like, can this be done better? Can we do this better? That idea, I think, is very aligned with uh, Gen X, uh, sorry, Gen Z and millennials. Oh, what do you think, Michael? I, I completely agree. They don't want to accept the status quo. And I, by the way, I think that this is true of younger generations throughout time. They go through their adolescent years. They have a lot of hormones and energy and they want to change the world and make it better. They see the problems. They're rebelling against the generations that came before them and feeling angry that they were left with a planet that's got so many problems and they want to go fix it. So I think if you start from that that place, that's not new per se, but this generation seems to be hanging on to it longer. And part of that is technology. You don't need to own a house. You don't need to own a car. You don't need to own music. You can rent everything. So your lifestyle is sort of comes from a different place. And that leaves a little bit more room to sort of say, what do I want? Like, I don't have to, I don't have to fight to live in a certain way because that that's a little bit more attainable. So what do I want? What's more meaningful to me? And then they, they get down to these sort of more value-driven things. And there's a, there's a pretty big discrepancy between big companies and living these values. And that, that's a big part of what this generation is trying to figure out how to, how to bridge. It's like, we want to work on things that we care about. And we also want to you know, be part of companies. 
I mean, it's quite a big shift. I mean, I'm thinking um, there's a piece of work by Carl Jung that was done um, called Brand Archetypes, which you might have seen. And and it's quite old now because he was a psychiatrist really in the late 1800s. But he used to talk about matching. And the matching was around 12 archetypes around if you can, if your brand can have similar values to the audience that you're trying to appeal to, there's a magnetic play here, which is quite powerful. So if you look at someone like Rolex, Rolex positions themselves around the archetype of the ruler. Um, Disney um, positions themselves around the archetype of the magician. And all they're doing is, 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 as I said, values matching. It seems to me that there's something interesting here that if, particularly that the, as you're describing these people, they, they are very purpose and values led, or they certainly have a good sense of that. If a company can't express a match, you know, this is who we are, this is what we're trying to achieve, this is our place in the world, this is the purpose. If, if that's not clearly communicated, it must be very difficult to attract these individuals into an organization. Yeah. And even if well, you can attract them, you can't retain them. Right. That's, I was going to say, I think you can attract them because, you know, there's the dollars and cents side of attraction, but I yeah. do think it's harder to retain them. If a company doesn't really understand their identity, what they stand for, who they are, what they represent, how they want their organization internally to uh, be run. I think the external value isn't as great people don't get connected to what the purpose is of the business. And so they likely won't stay as long. Um, so yeah, Michael, I think Michael's spot on. You can hire him, but you can't retain him. And if I can boil this down to one more level of practicality, which is I think part of what you're, you're hoping we can get to for the listeners. So most companies go into the job hiring process, creating a job description. And then when it comes time to working out what the package looks like for that person, they generally ask, one or two questions like, what's your salary requirement? And they used to ask, what, did, what, what are you currently making? They don't do that so much anymore because the law changed. And then they make an offer based on that. When we start helping somebody negotiate a full-time job offer, we start by having them fill out something called a lifestyle calculator, which is available um, uh, on the 10X Ascend site. But that aside, it, it has 24 attributes of what goes into a job package. And the, the candidate has a hundred points to weight them. So they're really, they're really telling us and telling themselves what's important to me working remotely. Is that important to me? This used to be much more of a conversation than it is right now, but, yeah, indeed. um, you know, uh, you know, how much vacation time do I get? What do you give me for continuing education? Whatever. There's 24 of these things. And by asking the question before the negotiation begins, you can actually tailor a package and an offer to what somebody cares about rather than just assuming that the 27-year-old who's single wants the same thing as the 35-year-old who has three kids and a, and a spouse at home. Like Those people don't want the same offer, but if they're going for the same job, they're getting the same offer. And that's a mistake that companies are making. And it, it goes right over into their ability to bring on freelancers because they have, they have, you know, and how widespread policies. is this, Michael? Because because I, you know, again, as I said, I, I, I have the visibility of lots of different businesses in what I do. I don't see many, well, some of the US ones in, in the tech bubbles, in those sense, they tend to operate more like this, but some of the more traditional organizations are still operating from a very set, let's call it HR protocol that, that I experienced in my corporate days 20 years ago. To date, well, we have only that's, seen- Well, that's why we wrote the book. That's exactly why we wrote the book, because right. there is this divide between yeah. companies that are sort of on the forefront already practicing a lot of this, and com most companies and governments for that matter, that just are, are, are in that standard deviation of, of companies that have not really gotten the message yet. And that's the whole purpose of the book is to really talk about 
the future in the knowledge economy where you're doing more with less, if you want to compete, these are things you need to adopt as an organization. Yeah. To date, we've only had one company that created an offer for one of one of the, the 10 XSN clients that 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 gave them a choice. They said, here's an offer with more equity and less cash, and here's an offer with more cash and more equity. That was a great start. I mean, but imagine if they actually started out by asking him, what are you interested in? And then gave him an offer that reflected that. And by the way, this will save companies money over time because it's money is not always the top priority, but they're always thinking that this is going to cost them more money. And then what I was what I was ultimately getting to is their ability to bring on freelancers, companies' ability to work with freelancers and say, we want to be agile. We want to bring on a data scientist for two weeks because we don't need that person on our staff, but having that expertise right now would be really valuable. They, I mean, the, the larger the company, for the most part, the worse they are at dealing with being able to do this quickly and, and effectively. Here's a really- Wow, that, 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 that piece I'm not, I'm not surprised about yeah. at all because a lot of what you're talking about here not, not is, is so much the, the change in the belief of how things can happen. You're also taking, you know, talking about the process change, yeah. the system change. Yes, definitely. And you know, I, I used to work in HR technology, so I've worked with all the kind of big providers of that capability, and I've, I've assessed them and I've kind of consulted. And the machines, the big enterprise level, the ERPs, as you like, they're not set up. You know, so you someone's no. someone's gone and invested massively in Oracle, and they go, oh, the last thing I want to do is change the machine. I'm, Even though the value that you're saying may be very transparent and actually longer term might be creating more value for those organizations as well. Yeah, totally. We we're, we're working with a very large financial institution, like global, massive. Everybody would know their name, and they've spent seven months trying to. <laughs> bring on somebody that they already pre-approved. They like the person. We've agreed on rates, seven months. And this is for like security work that really matters for the company. And it's not done yet. And it's not even close to being done yet. And this is a company- wow, where, Seven months. Where we had, right. We already had a master services agreement with this company. And what I said to them is like, you guys are letting wrongdoing, fear of wrongdoing, just get in the way of doing. Like how, how are you, I mean- You've already spent three times the amount of staff time just figuring out whether this engagement is going to happen and lost seven months of market time because your systems are not agile enough. And the, the best story I have about this is a guy who was being hired to teach an, another large company how to be more agile. That was what the engagement was for. That was what they're bringing him on for. And they gave him a contract that talked about him getting paid in, I want to say, 180 days. And he's like, I'm an independent contractor. We are a small business. Like we're not waiting six months to get paid. And by the way, if you want to be agile, this is a great place to start because I'm not doing the engagement like this. Um, so this stuff is rampant. Yeah. Wow. Um, not that I want you to talk about clients or whatever else, but I take it as part of your research or anything. That are, there, are there companies out there that are doing this extremely well that you reference in the book? If the answer is no, that's fine. No, I'm just that, curious. I think there are companies... <laughs> I think what there are are individuals at companies that are trying to do this really well. So most of the time that we end up working with a Fortune 1000 company or Fortune 50 company, there's a champion in the company who wants one of our people and is saying internally, I don't really care how you figure this out, but you have to figure this out because they have what I need and your other vendors don't. And that's how we get in the door. But it's, it's never the institution, it's never the HR department that's saying, 
we're going to make this faster, easier, more flexible. And in some of these institutions, they're also dealing with regulatory issues that make it very complicated. And it's not all, but, but the systems are old and broken. And if you allow every bad situation that's happened over the last 50 years to inform what your contract looks like, you just, you know, you're just going to make it impossible to get business done. So what what would be the um, the vision for you guys with the book then? Because because what we've just described is there is lots of organisations that potentially need to change what they're doing for reasons that you've articulated, but for lots of other reasons aren't or find it too complex or difficult. What would you like to happen? Well, look, it's it, there's a lot of bureaucracy at uh, most larger institutions, including government. And there is a need for bureaucracy, but if bureaucracy gets in the way of progress and gets in the way of, of com- competitive advantage for an organization, that's really detrimental. And this book is essentially talking about how to try and streamline bureaucracy so that you can, A, ensure that you're putting forth the right message um, to lure in the right kinds of people, and then that you're manage- you're bringing them into the organization properly and you're managing them properly. Um, so the hope for us with the book is that this will help that, you know, probably 75% of the marketplace globally to get a better understanding what the future of the talent economy really requires of a company. Um, because as we've been talking about for the last uh, 15, 20 minutes, <clears throat> excuse me, there are so many organizations that are just behind the curve on this. And, and that's really, it, it's for us, it's an educational tool and it is mirroring the experiences that we've had over the last almost decade uh, dealing with this wide array of different types of organizations and the ones that are flexible and don't let the bureaucracy get in the way of progress are the ones that are are uh, more agile, uh, more effective and tend to be market leaders um, in their, their vertical. Um, and there's really no reason that the ideas in the book could not be adopted globally. These are not like super complex uh, erudite concepts that people can't wrap their head around. They're very simple. Um, they make sense. It's really about a people-centric management policy as opposed to a CYA management policy, a cover-your-ass management policy, as Michael was talking about before. Um, you have to realize that you're doing more with less, and the people that are doing that more need to be treated in, and this is freelancer or full-time worker, they need to be treated in a much more humanistic kind of way. And we have a, I think we spent about three or four pages with a, with a grid of what companies should do when hiring a W-2 full-time employee versus what peop- what companies should do if they're hiring a freelancer. Um, and we go through like what they should or should not be doing. And it's a pretty extensive list of specific things that companies should be thinking about, either changing or identifying whether they're already doing those things. Um, so the book is a little bit big think it's a little bit um, history of how we got where we are. It's a little bit forward thinking and it's a little bit prescriptive. So, uh, you know, hopefully companies will, will look at this and make some changes based on the, the ideas and the recommendations in the book. Yeah, I like the balance of what you said as well about um, the, because I, I, see, I see the world of kind of permanent employment and, and freelance transitioning massively. In fact, the clients that I advise, which are, as I said, in startup scale-up, so they're normally past startup, but they're in that, that kind of journey of now yeah. having to build teams. Um, I see many mistakes made where they bring in the $200,000 a year salesperson from the big company and then expect that person to weave magic into this thing. Right. And then six months later, that person hasn't sold one thing. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden they've got a, 
mesh it apart. And most often the time I say, bring in, bring in a heavy hitter with a very clear goal and project, get that done before you start taking the risk on the full time. That's my, yeah. we my get goal. it. We are very big on, on rent fast, hire slow, um, as a, as a concept. Mm, and, I like that. Nice and, thing. And also in the example you're talking about, bringing in somebody from a big company who's used to having everything sort of set up for them on a silver platter, and then they have to go do their one thing well into a smaller company where they have to be very entrepreneurial and figure out how to build the system and build the process is a very different experience. And one of the companies that that we advise, I'm you know, I'm sort of talking to, to them about that. And and the great thing is they brought somebody in who had the big company experience and could bring that value to it, but they were also clearly a hustler and entrepreneurial and proved their mettle before they even got hired by sort of starting that work. And you have to build, you have to build process. The other thing I want to add to what Rashan said, because I think he did a great job of explaining like why and uh, 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 the how to the how to do it. The other thing that I think the book hopefully does is it convinces companies that why they need to do this, why it's so important to make a hospital hospitable place for 10 Xers, because these people are so incredibly good that when you have a place where you can be that good and you can stay and grow and, and, and be like that, and you can also go from being good to being great, you, you've just, you, you can, you can get so much more done. And so when with so much, such, such smaller resources, so I think that's a huge part of the, why do you want to do this? Why do you care? Why should you care? And hopefully we can bait that. Great. Okay. Well, what I want to do to finish off with today is just get a little bit more practical again, if we can, um, just a scenario, because I think we've talked around the concepts. We've talked around the various parts. We've defined what 10X means from your side. But if I'm listening to this, let's say I, I am that person in the organization, a reasonably large organization that's going, you know what? I want to make change happen, but I'm a bit of a lone voice. I do have enough authority to be able to start. What's the sequence? So where where do I start? I, I realize things have to change. You know, they might've got your book or you've come in. Where, what do you advise? I love the question and I'm going to kind of turn it back around because I think it's something you're going to relate to uh, given how much you focus on scaling up is what's the smallest experiment you can run to see if you can make this effective and to see if you can get some data to show why this is going to be good. Um, and that requires getting away from the how we did it before. Let's put that out of our mind. Like, I don't ever want to hear an excuse of, well, we've never done it that way before. Like, that's not how we've done it. Like, that's a perfect reason. And as an entrepreneur, I know you appreciate this of like, I do. To, to try <laughs> it, do it, doing it differently. So the, those two mindsets, I think, can be incredibly important. And then to get much more into the practicality, it's looking at who are you going to be speaking to? What do they want? How do you communicate what you have and how it, it actually connects with what they want? So we could talk about a small scale startup that's giving equity as part of the compensation. How many times have you seen a, a founder or a startup CEO offer equity without ever explaining why does this have value? Why is this better than the next company's equity? Oh, we're, we're not giving you options. We're giving you actual equity or we're giving you options, but we're giving you a long, a, a long period to exercise it. Explaining these things selling your attributes. These are our core values. Does this align with you? Like, do you, does this look like a place you want to work? There's so many ways to help communicate that you're a person who has desires and we're a company and we're trying to figure out if these things match with each other. And we actually care about whether we can match 
successfully with what you need to be able to survive and thrive. Okay, I love that answer. And I've got some thoughts on it, but I want to hand over just to, to Rishon for a second for his view on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that all those things are accurate. I think that there is a, a process flow for this, which is first identifying what the values are of the company, what the, the, the goals are, how people treat each other, what you want to present into the world. Once a company truly understands that, then I think you start right at the hiring process, which we talk about in the book and, and we mentioned the lifestyle calculator. The hiring process is your first entry point to get to know who this person is that's going to work for your company. And I don't think that HR does an effective job of really understanding what the goals and aspirations and the lifestyle in general of the individual is. So I think it starts with understanding that the lifestyle calculator is, is a great point of entry. Um, because once you understand more about the candidate at that stage, you can introduce them more effectively into whatever team um, that they're going to be working within. And then it goes into how managers deal with teams, how managers above those managers deal with them. Um, it's about a lot of buy-in. We talk about OKRs and SMART goals in the book. These are different ways for teams to get alignment um, without micromanaging. Um, that's another thing about 10 Extras. Like if you're hiring somebody who's amazing at what they do, and Steve Jobs said this, we hire brilliant people, not so we can tell them what to do, so they can tell us what to do. So there's this idea of, you know, don't micromanage, but manage in a way that, that people have buy-in, they understand what their role is, and there are different checkpoints along the way, they're time-bound uh, engagements, and, and you can sort of base your success and failure off of those, those goals that you set as a team. And then it talks about, the book talks about sort of this, again, we, we, we spoke right about the management continuum. Once you understand who the employee is better, starting with the HR process, um, and starting with managers, getting to know who these people are on a much more personal level, um, then you start weeding out for sabotage and success. Because when you truly know somebody, when you know who an employee is, you can very easily identify the sabotage elements. Um, and then it's really about how you manage them, what managers need to do in order to effectively manage you know, high-performing high individuals. Um, so the book really goes into a lot of these steps. Um, but it really has to do with a people-centric methodology that starts with your values and then goes through understanding who the individuals are that work for your organization. And that's why we refer to them all as talent, um, because they are all talent. They're not just employees. They are the talent that makes the machine that you are building run. They're humans, aren't they? One of my um, one of my uh, good friends who's a HR specialist, um, she's famous for saying, putting putting the human back into right. HR. Right, yes, yeah. exactly. I think that's a great... <laughs> she, gets, she gets told off for saying that. Um, her name is Lisa Hager. I'll give her a call out on this show because she'll love the fact I referenced it. But she's she puts stuff on LinkedIn all the time and people just kind of slam her because she's challenging the profession, you know, in a yeah. way which is right, but is, you know, that whole idea of putting her head above the parapet. <laughs> no, I think I think that's so spot on because you've got um, you've got these two words, human resource, and resource is like it is the opposite of a human. It's a thing yeah. that you use that you're you're supposed to exploit. I mean, that's what the resource is for. And then the human is this you know complicated thing. And those two are it's not an oxymoron, but it's almost it's pretty close. No, it is. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize a little bit. I think um, the thing because we've spoken about a lot of different concepts today. And of course, people can can get the book and, and read the detail. And as I said, we'll put a few of the uh, the various quizzes and whatever else into the show notes as well. But I like the idea of the, the, simple, the simple idea of being more, as you said, lifestyle quotient to someone's package. 
whatever that means, whether that's the split of, you know, do you want to work from home? Do you want to have three days? Whatever that looks like, particularly now as we go through the situation. I think that feels quite practical. And back to your point, Michael, about an experiment, I can see lots of companies that I advise trying something like that with a really strong business case behind it if they need that to say, you know what, there is actually a a cost-benefit return, not just in um, retention, but in the fact that, you know, we might be paying people less here because actually they don't value the money. They value the fact they can have Fridays right. off or whatever that is. Yep. So I like that as something that's very practical. When you said, what was that called? What was the quiz called? Uh, lifestyle, lifestyle Calculator. Calculator. Lifestyle Calculator. We'll make sure we put that into the notes. And I just want to make a point that I I had the experience of something. It's not going to be um, as, as well thought through or detailed as what we've t- talked about today. But I worked for a company called Getty Images back in yeah. 2008, 2009, and they had seven leadership principles. Which, which is, the reason I bring it up is everyone in the organization knew those principles. Everyone in the business was measured against them. So if if you had a bonus, half of it was based on what you delivered, the other was how you did it. And they had an old school practice of 10 interviews to get a job. The first one interview was about, do you have the competency? And then the other nine interviews is, do you fit the culture? But it was powerful. I mean, that business was bought and sold and IPO'd and did all sorts of stuff. But obviously, everyone in that business knew what the mission was. Yeah, they knew the purpose. They knew the the principles, the behaviors, and it was it was self managed. It was really clever. So you'd go into after a meeting, they'd say, "Did we live the seven principles in this meeting?" Yeah, you know things like that. But it was so powerful. I remember to this day that it was just a very effective um, environment to work in. We call that one our of those principles values. was yeah. I hope one of those principles was not having too many meetings because that's another thing. No, no. Well, you know what? It was much. funny. Well, every meeting had to have an agenda and an outcome. It was that, and there was it was a piece that you didn't have a meeting unless it had that. So yeah. it did it did screen out the fact that it wasn't just that. But it was you know I wouldn't say it was perfect. And there's some things we've spoken about today which I think take it to another level, particularly yeah. because you know there's more understanding of what works, but. But that's a, a certainly a personal experience of mine of when you get this right, um, it can create a lot of value for a business, not only from the human side of it, but obviously from the impact that the business can make going forward. Yeah, I think I think that's well, you know, attrition, yeah. attrition and replacing employees is one of the biggest costs to any business. So at the very least, what we believe is that that practicing these kinds of values will keep people at a company longer because they will feel comfortable. They will enjoy the environment they're working in, the people that they work with. Um, they will feel fulfillment from it. Um, and as an organization, you're going to retain people and hopefully retain better people, um, which is a huge difference maker. And we've, right. we've seen our own retention go through the roof by, by employing these, these uh, ideals um, and get direct feedback about people feeling cared for. Um, and that that's part of what they stick around for is that they feel like they're part of something and people no, I agree care about that. them I as agree individuals. Perfect. Well, listen, guys, it's been awesome having you on the show. Um, where can people reach out to to either speak with you guys individually? Obviously, we'll talk about um, when the book's being um, launched in a second, but how can people get to you guys? Yeah, so we have uh, the book website is gamechangerthebook.com and our LinkedIn and Twitter links are there so people can connect right. with us there. They can also take the quiz um, to see where they individually stand on the 10x scale or as an organization uh, where they stand on the 10x scale. Um, so that that website really has everything they'll need. Great. We'll make sure, as I said, we put that in the show notes. And I believe the book's coming out uh, September 22nd. That's, That's the last correct. date I saw. That is yes, correct. Okay. And sometimes these dates change, but I'll make sure. No, that, I, uh, I don't think that's say. changing. Nothing like a COVID oh, book release. We're, we're learning new stuff every day. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, listen, I want to wish you guys all the best with the release. I think it's a very timely 
timely book from how you've described it. And, and I hope that it delivers what you said in terms of getting people to think differently about this and starting to take some action to, to bring the human side back into, uh, into, into this world of, yeah. um, of business and growth and scale up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. It was a real pleasure. It was. <laughs>